Thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for having a desire to, to be with God's people and, and to fellowship one with another. And then to hear the word of God. Uh, this is our, our food, our, our spiritual nourishment. And, uh, and it's important that we get that. And I'm glad we have Bible teaching going on on Sunday mornings, even before the worship time and then the preaching of the word of God. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. We've been walking through this wonderful Gospel as Luke is explaining to Theophilus under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit all the happenings and the occasions and, and, and the teachings and the miracles of the life of Jesus Christ. And, and he's helping to refresh us. I guess one of the things that I would desire in this series that I've entitled simply Follow Me and it's, it's the emphasis is on being disciples, is that, that you and I, even though many of these things that we, we touch on in the Gospel of Luke, you've, you've heard, you know, you've read before, you've got it memorized. And, but, but I pray that the Holy Spirit, working as only He can, each time we hear these messages and read these scriptures, I, I pray that, that, that He will renew us and, and it's almost like we, we kind of find something new to hang on to and, and excite us about. And, and ultimately, I would like to think that as Christians, we would have a renewed relationship with the Lord, a renewed love for the Lord, a desire to know Him and to serve Him. And for those that have yet to be uh, uh, brought into the family of God by faith, I pray that God works through these uh, messages and, and the messages that are preached uh, on the other Sundays in Romans that God will use the Word of God to draw you into a personal relationship with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be looking at chapter 9 and reading and, uh, together as we go along, uh, verses 1 through 17. And you know, I was reading one of the commentators that I was consulting in preparation of the message, and they referred to this passage, this episode, if you will, in the ministry of Jesus Christ in chapter 9 as, as representing somewhat of a watershed in the earthly ministry of the Son of God. And so up to this point, you know, Jesus has been spending the majority of his time in the region of Galilee. And, and doing the teachings and in the synagogues and out in the uh, elements outside, you know, uh, on the side of the mountain or wherever multitudes would gather. He's been working powerful miracles that would obviously uh, demonstrate to people that this was not an ordinary rabbi and, and, and ordinary teacher. So his public ministry has been in the region of, of Galilee, but now it's beginning to wind down. And the Lord is beginning to, to turn his attention to the region of Judah. And he will be. And, and then even more narrowly, Jerusalem. And then ultimately, in a mere 18 months, he will be looking at a Roman cross. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? Just 18 months from this point, as Jesus is making his trek towards Judah, Jerusalem, and the cross, which represents the pinnacle of his redemptive mission on this earth. Well, at this point, we see Jesus is entering into kind of a transition of his ministry. He's doing something now that he's not done before. So far, all of his public ministry has focused pretty much on him. He's the center, and he always is. But I'm saying he, he is the focal point of the ministry. But now you'll see he's beginning to spread that out. Which is almost saying to you and me, 
Jesus came to reveal the wonderful message of the kingdom of God, but he never intended to distribute that message alone. And we'll see that as we look at this passage beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. The first thing I want you to see in this, this very pivotal time in the life and ministry of Jesus is first he deploys his apostles. The Lord deploys his disciples, his apostles. And I'll use that term, apostle, disciple, interchangeably, because the gospel writer does. Understand that these apostles, the twelve that are sent out by Christ, are disciples. They were disciples first. They're always disciples, because a disciple is simply a follower of Christ. Now, these are the only apostles. We don't have 21st century apostles. Don't call me an apostle because I've never witnessed Jesus Christ firsthand in person or his miracles and, and what forth. He didn't send me as a representative or uh, uh, you know, as his apostle. But these 12 are. And so I want you to look there as he is deploying his apostles. And let's look beginning in verse 1. Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over demonic or over demons and to cure diseases. Verse 2, he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and, he, and to heal the sick. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, that's a big walking stick if you will, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. That's traveling pretty light by today's standards, isn't it? But he was just saying, don't worry about packing. Just go. There's a purpose in that. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So let's just stop there because, first of all, what you see is the Lord is deploying His apostles Apostle simply means sent out ones. As he's deploying these apostles, first of all, Jesus empowers those he sends. He always gives the power and authority that is needed to everyone he sends. Folks, that includes you and me. He's not sending us on a mission without empowering us to do what he's called, and that's the case with his disciples. The reason that he wanted them to go forth with power, and I'm speaking of divine power, is that it, the power they would demonstrate, and we'll see how, would be authentication of their ministry. It would say to all those people that they encountered as they went, we're not ordinary teachers. We didn't come from an ordinary rabbi. We are representatives or ambassadors, if you will, of the Messiah. And to prove it, watch. And so the miracles that they are performing are designed to authenticate the ministry that they represent. And so as, as preparation, he gives to them divine power over diseases. He gives to them divine authority over the supernatural evil forces because we're told there in those verses there at verse 1 that he gave them power and authority over all demons. The average run-of-the-mill teacher of that day didn't have any authority or power over demons. Demons usually would torment them. 
And not only that, to cure diseases. So you see, they have power and authority over the natural realm and the supernatural realm. Now these are, remember, former fishermen and tax collectors and zealots. Average, just run-of-the-mill, everyday people. And now they're going out with this kind of a power and authority. You know, it's very similar to what we have witnessed in our study of the Old Testament. When it comes to the Old Testament prophets, God gave to them power. We just studied about that in our uh, CGG lesson this morning that Pastor Mark was teaching in 1 Kings 18 and 19 where the prophet Elijah exhibited great power. And God demonstrated His favor upon Elijah by demonstrating divine power at the beckoning call of His faithful prophet. We'll see that in the prophet Elisha. So it's not the first time that God gives power to those that He sends to represent Him. And this is important. But not only does the Lord empower his, those He sends, but the Lord also instructs very specifically those He sends. The Lord doesn't send us out and just say, well, just go do your thing. Be whatever you want to be, but just throw my name in there somewhere. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians out there, and unfortunately, there are a lot of churches out there that are trying to do that, and they're not sticking to the instructions. Jesus was very specific when He gave instructions to His disciples. He told them, first of all, you're going to be going out, you're going to be, you're going to be preaching, you're going to be teaching, you're going to be uh, working miracles. But the main thing that Jesus tells them to do, folks, He teaches them, He instructs them that they are to go and repeat His message. They're not to go out there and come up with their own pretty speech or oracle you know, that, that would tickle the ears of the people. No, they were to go and they were to preach. And you look at verse 2, He sent them to what? To preach the kingdom of God. To preach the kingdom of... There was only one message. There was only one message in the life of Jesus Christ when He came on the scene. And John the Baptist, who was the forerunner, and that message was, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Folks, there's only been one message, and there never will be another message. There is still one message today. And the message that you and I have through the lives we live, through the testimony we share, that the witness that we give is that the kingdom of God is at hand. The, the Messiah has already come. And He's coming again. And that's the message. And that was the message of Jesus, I think, back in chapter 4 in Luke's Gospel when the people, when Jesus was working miracles in a deserted place, and boy, they were mesmerized, and they wanted Him to stay with them and go nowhere else and just be their, their king, if you will. And Jesus said in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verse 43, but He said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, because for this purpose I have been sent. Who sent Jesus? God the Father. Jesus said over and over and over again that the, my purpose in this life, my very food, my nourishment, my, my reason for being is to do the will of the One who sent me. And He would dare not deviate from that message. And God would send His Son to reveal to the world and even through His disciples 
that the kingdom of God was at hand. When these disciples, these apostles were going out through the towns of Galilee into the synagogues or wherever they could get a crowd to gather and listen to them, they were saying they were not apologizing for the fact that the one that they represented was not a rabbi. He was not a priest. He was not a run-of-the-mill you know, uh, a Pharisee. He was the Son of God. He was the promised Messiah. And so you see, we don't need to go out there and try to paint Jesus as anything other than the Son of God. You don't have to apologize for the fact that the one who came and was born in a, in a stable in Bethlehem who, who represented the kingdom of God and taught the kingdom of God and died on a cross to pay the price for the sins of the world was just a good teacher, a good philosopher. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He will always be the Son of God. And when He came into this world, He came to usher in the glorious kingdom of God. As Pastor Mark just pointed out, as we celebrate Advent, we celebrate His first coming, but hallelujah, don't lose sight of the fact that He's coming again. Amen? I don't doubt that. I live for that. I live for that, that, that very reality. Lord, could this be the day? Could this be the day that You come again and establish Your reign upon this earth and You vanquish all of evil and sin from the face of the globe? Oh, could this be the day of Your second coming? And let me tell you something, church and Christians individually, the Lord empowers us. He empowers us. He is not going to send us out into this world without bestowing upon us His power to do His will, to teach His message, to reach out to the lost. We have His power. The Lord has given us not only His power, but He's given, he's given the power of His Holy Spirit in us. It's not some voodoo or hocus pocus. It's the third person of the Holy Trinity who lives in my heart. Does the Holy Spirit live in your heart? If you're a true born again believer of Jesus Christ, dear friend, the reality is He lives in you. Thy love Galatians 2.20 where the Apostle Paul says, For I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. Do you wake up in the morning with that on your mind? Knowing the challenges you're going to face? Knowing the opposition you're going to be up against when you stand on the Word of God? Do you reason to yourself, don't be afraid. Don't be intimidated. The Spirit of the living God lives within you. There's nothing the devil can do to overpower that which God wants to do in you and me. Amen? I believe that. So the Lord deploys His apostles, but we also see, and it's interesting, because as you look at the parallel Gospels given to us in Matthew chapter 10, and, and in 14 of Matthew chapter 10 and 14, and in Mark chapter 6, you'll see that, that they handle, there are things that, that Luke appears to omit. And they go into more detail. And that's just because Luke is following the ministry of Christ in a very precise and thematic pattern. So when it comes to talking about Herod the Great, Luke just gives kind of a summary. But if you want to get the full details, you just go back to Mark chapter 6 and you'll read, and he inserts the full-blown account of John the Baptist and King Herod. Of course, we know that King Herod was the 
devious king that ended up beheading the forerunner of Jesus Christ, John the Baptist. Well, the Lord deploys his apostles, but it wasn't, last, it wasn't long that we see that the Lord disturbs a wicked king. He disturbs a wicked king. Look at verse 6. So they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. This is his apostles. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, and the Tetrarch is one of four rulers. The kingdom of Israel was divided by Rome into four parts, and, and Herod, the, the, uh, not Herod the Great, he's the son of Herod the Great, the, the, the Herod that tried to kill ba baby Jesus. He's the son of that wicked king. But he's wicked too because he beheaded John the Baptist. And so now Herod the Tetrarch heard all of this was done by him. And all of this would be not just what Jesus has been doing, and certainly that has drawn a great deal of attention. It's gotten a whole lot of publicity. But now you understand that as Jesus is sending out his disciples, his apostles, it's amplified. His impact is amplified, and now all of this is coming to the attention of the king, and that's important. Now, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and I'll just insert his apostles, and, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And here, if you just pause there for a second, if you want to turn over to Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, look at verse 14, or you can just make a notation of it. But it's interesting in Mark's version, in Mark's, chap, Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verse 14, it says, Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had been well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. Others said, it is the prophet, like one of the, um, uh, one of the old. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. So keep that in the back of your mind. Because we're looking at a, we're looking at a wicked king who's dealing with some guilt. But, but going back to Jesus' amplified ministry through his disciples, as we see his disciples going out there and they are preaching and they are teaching and they are working miracles, that, you know, we see Jesus' widespread, now multiplied ministry attracting the attention not just of the people, but of the king. And it just so happened that Galilee is the very territory that Herod is ruling over. And so you can understand why this is beginning to get a hold of him. So as we think about how Jesus' ministry and the ministry of his apostles are disturbing Herod, let me submit that Herod's guilty fear is beginning to generate subtle insecurity within him. For those of you that might not remember, he had John the Baptist arrested because John was saying some true but yet insulting things about him and his wife. It just so happened that his wife was his brother's wife and he took her and, you know, just old-fashioned first century incest, I guess. But anyway, John just pointed that out publicly and Herod was angry, or actually Herodias, his wife, was really upset because that upset her social rankings, I'm sure. So anyway, John had him arrested. He was holding him there, listening to him. And finally, John, uh, King Herod was tricked into having John beheaded. And then he was still responsible but he had him beheaded. He dreaded it, but he did it. And that made him nonetheless wicked. 
And so now, all of a sudden, here's this talk about this powerful man who's working great miracles, and the people are talking about it, and, and his ministry is being multiplied and, and amplified, and now King Herod is starting to have some insecurities, I suspect, and, and some of the commentators that I share, because of the guilt that is in his heart. And so we see this king beginning to, to respond. And as I shared with you back in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, he's actually thinking, John's come back. He's, he's coming back. He's, what is he going to do to me? And so this, this kind of guilt is beginning to eat at him. And so, you know, it's interesting though that as we, as we read, read on there in verse 8 of, of Luke chapter 9, it says, and by, by some that Elijah had appeared and by others that one of the old prophets had arisen again. And Herod said, John, I have beheaded but who is this of whom I hear such things? But then look at the closing statement there in verse 9. And he sought to see him. This is how troubled his mind is. On one hand, he's guilty. He's wondering what is this risen John going to do. But then on the other hand, he's curious. And, he's, and he remains curious because he's not had a face-to-face -face encounter with Christ. And so this, this closing statement here has future ramifications because we know from the Scriptures in, in Luke's Gospel chapter 23 and verse 6 that Herod will see Him face to face. That, that desire to see Jesus out of curiosity is actually going to be fulfilled in the last day of, of our Lord's life physically before He was crucified. Because you remember when Jesus was arrested, he was brought before Pilate. Pilate being the kind of chicken-hearted, you know, two-faced kind of a guy that he was, was looking for a way to get out of the dilemma. He knew Jesus was innocent. He didn't want to have the, the, the guilt on his hands of crucifying an innocent man, yet he had the pressure of the political and the religious pressure of the Jewish leaders pressuring him to crucify Christ. So all of a sudden somebody says, well, you know this Jesus comes from Galilee... Nazareth, Galilee. That means he's really not under your domain. He's, he's under the jurisdiction of Herod. And guess who's in town today for the Passover? Herod's in town. So Pilate says, oh good, good, good. I'll send this Jesus over to Herod and I'll let him deal with it. Of course, this was Herod's opportunity to be face to face with Jesus. And all he wanted Jesus to do was work some miracles. Show me some of the miracles that you've been doing. And then when Jesus refused to do that, he said, all right, all right, tell me who you are. And he was probing him with questions and wanted to, and Jesus didn't even open his mouth. Jesus didn't dignify this man's evil intentions and desires. And Herod had him mistreated, shamefully beaten, and sent him back to Pilate. So you see, this wicked king who was disturbed who had a desire to see the Lord, saw Him. You know and I know that according to the teachings of the Word of God, those who reject Jesus Christ, even when they die, they will see Him again. They will see Him again. Because He will sit on a great white throne, John tells us in the Revelation, there in the closing chapters of that powerful vision. 
And he will sit on that great white throne and he will judge not only the living but the dead. Those who have rejected Christ will be brought back, resurrected from the dead, and they will stand before him and Herod will see Jesus again. One last time. And he will have to bow his knee before the King of Kings and the judge of the universe. And he'll hear this same Jesus who wouldn't speak to him in Jerusalem, but you better believe on that day, he'll say to Herod the, uh, the Tetrarch, depart from me, for I've never known you. And he will spend a hopeless eternity in hell. This is a troubled man. And it's interesting that Luke inserts this into this watershed moment in the life of Jesus. But let's move on. Because we see the Lord deploying his, his apostles. We see the Lord disturbing a wicked king. But, but I think the, the real essence of this episode, if you will, is about to happen here in chapter 9, and beginning in verse 10, because we see the Lord reveals his messianic power and his messianic compassion. Jesus is powerful. But he is loving. Does that, does that not fit the description of God? God is love. And yet God is all power. He's El Shaddai. The invincible, omnipotent, all-powerful God. And Jesus embodies this in his earthly ministry and we'll see this demonstrated in the remaining verses. Let's begin in verse 10. And the apostles, when they had returned, now mind you, they've been out, and I mean these guys have been preaching, they've been teaching, they've been, they've been going at it and traveling all, all over. And the apostles, when they had returned, told him all that they had done. In Mark's gospel, they said not only what they did, but also what they taught. But don't miss what, what comes next. And he took them, the apostles, and he went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida, which was, by the way, the hometown of Philip, one of the apostles. But in this, and, and, and stop and just think about what, what he's doing here. Jesus knows that his disciples have been working. They've been working hard. They've been going at this thing. And so now you see Jesus attending to their needs. In Mark's Gospel, in verse 30, chapter 6, verse 30, it says, Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both that they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, Come aside, beside, uh, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. See, Jesus is not a slave driver. Even when he works us hard, the Lord has compassion. I think it's important that we see that Jesus saw this. He's, look, the humanity of Christ enables Him to empathize with the needs of His people. And He saw these disciples coming back. They, they're road weary. They've been preaching. They've been working miracles and casting out demons. And, 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 and now they're back there with the Lord and, and He recognizes that they need rest. And so He, he brings them back and he affords them this opportunity in what would apparently be a deserted place, a nice quiet place, 
I don't know if you've ever gone to an ideal vacation place that was described as being this nice oasis of quiet and peace and everything, and you get there, there's about 20,000 people, you know. Don't go to Disney World if you're looking for a nice, deserted, quiet place. Or, yeah, but I'm just saying, just quite disappointed. If you, you can imagine how this may have been for Jesus as he was seeking to minister to his disciples there in chapter 9. But he's attending to the needs of his disciples. And might I say, just insert this personal note. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, in, in, in personal ministry, not just as pastors, you know, or, or missionaries, but as, as you embark, if you, are, if you are zealous to do the will of God, if you are given your best to, to represent Christ on your job or in your school or wherever you are, you know, it can be tiring. And, and it can be draining. And I want you to understand, you have a Savior who knows. He understands what it's like to be exhausted. You remember, it wasn't long back that we talked about Jesus riding in the stern of the boat while they were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and He was sleeping like a baby. Folks, when you can sleep in a hurricane, you've got to be dog-tired. <laughs> Jesus understood what it meant to be hungry, to be tired, to be to be thirsty, and so he can relate to our needs. He's not some transcendent, separated, distant deity that doesn't understand. And so we see his compassion exhibited towards his disciples, but as the story continues to unfold, you see the magnitude of his power, and you see the magnitude of his compassion as the Messiah. Look at verse 11. Now, they go to a deserted place, but I guarantee you there are people that were spying to find Jesus and the word got out. Jesus is in Bethsaida at a deserted place. And lo and behold, between verse 10 and verse 11, a, multiply, a, a multitude develops. But when the multitude knew it, they followed him. And I want you to look next. What it, say. it doesn't say, and Jesus turned and said, Oh my goodness, can't nobody find any place alone? Can't anybody get peace and quiet? Go away, shoo, shoo. That's not how he responds. That's not our Savior. Remember, he knows his time in the region of Galilee is drawing nigh. These precious souls mean everything. And it says that when he saw them, he received them and spoke to them, what? About their physical needs? No. He spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Folks, don't ever, don't ever miss this. The priority of our personal ministry is not to meet the physical needs, emotional needs of people, even though that's fine and great and wonderful. Our first task, Jesus tells us, is to share the kingdom of God. Because the greatest need that people have in this world is not physical, it's not financial, it's not emotional. The greatest need that your neighbors and your family and your friends and co-workers have is salvation if they don't know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. The time will come in the sharing of the Gospel and reaching out to people with the Word of God where you can help minister to physical and financial and emotional needs. But don't, don't get the, the cart before the horse. Jesus didn't, nor should we. He preached to them. But then on the heels of that, it says, and healed those 
who had need of healing. So he wasn't blind to the fact that there were people who had real needs, but he made sure he got the ministry in order. And he ministers first to their spiritual needs, and then he begins to attend to their physical needs, not just for healing, as we'll see here in just a moment. As you look at verse 12, when the day began to wear away, the twelve came, to, came and said to him, Send the multitude away, that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provision, for we are in a deserted place here. There are no restaurants, there are no food pantries. Send them back into town somewhere and let them take care of themselves. You know, I, I, and I ask God to forgive me if I'm reading too much into the beginning of verse 12. But you can picture it, can't you? This, this multitude's there. Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has been healing. The sun's going down, getting late in the day. I wonder, in the heart of the Son of God, knowing that He was at a watershed moment, His days were fast drawing near where He wouldn't be amongst these people anymore. I wonder if the setting of the sun caused him to think in his mind, this is the setting of my ministry among these Galileans. They may never see me again. They may never hear my teaching again. I'm just speculating. But I can see that image. And, and, and so when it was drawing nigh to evening and his disciples are saying, send them into the village... The Lord already had another plan. He had another plan. In fact, what we're going to see, folks, is by most scholars that I've read, described as the greatest miracle Jesus worked on the earth. Apart from His bodily resurrection from the grave. Because it involved and impacted more lives in one setting than any other time in His ministry. So, I've got your curiosity up a little bit. Some of you say, oh, I know. I've read this before. <laughs> Verse 13, when it starts with a but, that means Jesus has got a different opinion. <clears throat> but, he said, you give them something to eat. The, the Lord never wastes a miracle, y'all. Okay? So, so what you're going to see here is going to be not only a test, but it's going to be a test, a teaching moment. Just like I, I felt like Elijah's miracle up on the mountain, you know, that was a that was a test of the people of Israel, and it was a teaching moment about their relationship with God. So here, here we go. He says, "You give them something to eat." Now. Is it my imagination or did the Bible just say they came back from traveling all around Galilee teaching the kingdom of God? What? Healing people. What? Casting out demons. Hey, let me tell you something. These guys got power. What was it missing in their mind when they said, we just cast out a bunch of demons? Healing lepers and, and, and lame people and, 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 and dumb people. And, oh, and we, we got this Jesus. It was a test. You give them something to eat. Well, of course, the Lord knew they wouldn't come to that conclusion. 
And they said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish. Is that your faith? When the Lord puts what appears to be an insurmountable challenge before you to represent Him and to represent the kingdom of God and to minister to, 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 to people in need, is that your faith? Lord, I only got five loaves of bread, biscuits, and two little sardines. What can I do? Learn. Listen and learn. I mean, I'm not criticizing Peter and James and John and Andrew and that crowd. Because Charlie Martin would probably been standing there with them little low Bojangle biscuits. Yeah, that's all, that's all, that's all I got, Lord. <laughs> Verse 14, for there were about 5,000 men. 5,000 men. And in Mark's Gospel, I believe it is, he says, in addition to the men, there were women and children. So most but biblical scholars say that represents a crowd of anywhere from 15 to 20,000. Okay, so when you have Christmas dinner at your house, ladies, don't fret over 20, 30. 15, 20,000, looking out down the street, across the parking lot, you know, hey, relax. He's got it. Now, I'm not suggesting you try to perform a miracle. Okay, <laughs> back to the text. So there were about 5,000 men, so we're talking about a crowd of about 20, 15 to 20,000. And he said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they, and they did so. Now I'll commend the disciples at this point. They were on board. They, they didn't say, oh, oh Jesus, didn't you hear what we said? Five loaves, two loaves of fish? No, they, okay. Because I think they realized he's up to something. And they did so and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and loaves are deceiving because I go to the grocery store and I think about a loaf. I'm thinking about bunny bread, you know, or, or French loaf, you know, about that, you know, good. No, we're talking about uh, little biscuits, okay? He took the five biscuits and the two little fish and looking up to heaven. Isn't that interesting? He wasn't focusing attention on the fish and the bread. His eyes were on who? The Father. Looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled. That's like shoving back from the table. You know, like, whew, that show was good. Chitlins, I tell you. Anyway, pushing back, satisfied. Did you get it? Nobody was saying, uh, can I have some more? satisfied and then leftovers now I realize some of y'all are sophisticated and you don't mess with leftovers but this old boy I eat them until the health department says cut that out so, and they ate and were filled and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken by them 12 baskets hmm 12 apostles we got breakfast we got lunch for tomorrow Jesus goes beyond the needs, doesn't he? He he doesn't just you know very eking out just what we need. He goes beyond. Jesus is into surplus. I hope you didn't miss in our worship guide as you were reading in the responsive reading down near the bottom. It talked about another miracle feeding by Elisha. A limited amount of food, and he told his servant, you know, it was during a famine. And says, give, give it, you know, give it to these hundred men. And his servant was like the disciples. <laughs> what? 
ahead and here's some bread and I got some fruit. There's a hundred men here. And Elisha, representing Christ, said, don't worry about it, God's got this. And if you read that, you'll notice that it said not only was everybody able to eat, everybody was filled. Leftovers. So, so the miracle here is testing their faith. The miracle here is teaching them. And teaching you and me. When the Lord leads us up against a challenge where there are great abundant needs that seem to overwhelm our reason. Don't miss this now. Because this is important for His disciples. They needed to remember who was with them out there in that deserted, desolate place. They didn't have to look at the fish. They didn't have to look at the bread. All they needed to do was put their eyes on the one who was with them. This is Elohim. He's the God that said, let there be light. And there was light. He's the one that separated the land from the sea. He's the one that put the planets in orbit and the stars and the constellations. He's the one that created humanity in His own image. And listen, as long as He is with you, you can do anything that He desires for you to do. And I'm afraid the church has backed off and been intimidated by secularism and humanism and the world in which we live and we've lost sight of the essence of the Great Commission. When Jesus says to His disciples, that's you and me, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all things that I've commanded you. He didn't say you're on your own. He said, Lo, I am with you. Always. Always. I think about our missionaries serving in some of these most desolate and dangerous parts of the world where they are one amongst millions that don't know Jesus and they're the one family that believes in Christ. They're the only single light burning in the darkness of the shroud of sin and false religion. Listen, do you think for a second that they would be able to survive in that kind of a spiritual culture if they didn't know in their heart that God was with them? If you ever have an opportunity to go to one of our Southern Baptist commissioning ceremonies, I promise you, take you some Kleenexes. Because when these young couples stand up there and they got children and they're talking about going into West Africa and living among these nomadic tribes that travel in the desert where bandits are and where Muslims might you know, haunt them or attack them. And they stand up there and they say, we believe that God has called us to go and we're going to go and we're going to trust God because He's with us. Let me tell you, they know that Jesus is with them. And they know that He will accomplish what He needed to accomplish. And I dare say people in that region never forgot that 15 to 20,000 people stood there with their jaws dropping as he was just breaking and breaking and breaking and they're eating and eating and he's breaking and breaking and they're trying to say, where in the world does this come from? Who is this man? Who is this man? I'll tell you who he is. 
He is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Savior of the world, soon coming King of kings and Lord of lords. And He has promised you and He has promised me. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, You are indeed the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are our Savior. And we praise You and thank You for that. Lord, there may be an individual or individuals here today that have yet to come by faith to that point in their lives to trust You as their Savior and as their Lord and to commit to follow You by faith obediently practicing the principles of Your Word as a true disciple. And yet You have chosen them, Lord. You are drawing them to Christ. Oh Lord, I pray that You would give them the faith that would enable them to, to take that step of faith and to reach out to You to confess their sins and to repent of their sinful ways and to profess by faith that You are the Son of God, the Savior of the world, and to commit to follow You and to be a part of the kingdom of God. Lord, they can lay their heads on the pillow tonight having made that kind of a faith decision and know that no matter what, even if they were to die this day, they will live forever in Your very presence. Lord, I pray for Christians who have already made that decision, maybe are wavering in their faith and, and in their following of You. And Lord, they need to be reminded that, that their purpose on this earth is not to be famous or to be popular or to be successful materially, but to follow You and to do Your will. Oh Lord, I pray for this church that You would indeed revive us as a congregation and help us to refocus our attention on what the priority of our existence is. We are to be like a city set on a hill, a shining light to the community around us of the precious message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. We need Your help, Lord. Remind us, Lord, constantly that You are always with us. And we thank You, Jesus. You are so gracious and good and kind and we praise You. In Thy precious name we pray. And the people of God said, Amen.